0: Thanks, Sean. Well, welcome to church, friends. My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland EV. Why don't we pray together as we um, come to hear and we've just heard God speak in his word. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're very aware today that as we come together, that we get to hear you speak. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have left for us throughout history, that historical account of the way you've acted through your people. And we ask today that we would see you as you are, and we would see ourselves as we are, and that we might come away today with a picture of you and a picture of us that represents reality, not what we might like to think it be. We pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. Well, I have a hunch... That all of us have a tendency to tame our view of God. To kind of minimize aspects of Him. There's some aspects we love and we want to say, oh, look how loving God is. Look how great God is. But other aspects we kind of, I think we just tend to minimize. And even those good aspects I think we undersell. His power, His presence, His love, His anger his requirements of us we we tend to domesticate our view of god fit him into the little box in my mind of what i like to call god but i want to put it to us today that so many of our problems in life our struggles our frustrations our confusions with the world and what's going on i think would be fixed if we just stopped taming god Today, we're going to see and hear things that hopefully will recalibrate our view of God and help us to see Him as He really is. Uh, The story that Sean just read for us starts in chapter 3 here with a a boy called Samuel. Now, if you haven't been with us so far, um, basically, we're in the middle of a national leadership crisis in this book of 1 Samuel. We're looking for a leader to lead God's people, for God's people had no leader. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted. And really, they're about to get smashed from the nations around them. But the kind of focus of the story hones in on on one country girl called Hannah and her barrenness, her childlessness, and how she prays to God and God provides her a child. And we've picked up hints throughout the story so far that while Hannah seems, well, and and this, this possible child seems so insignificant, really there's something going on, something big, something about God that he wants us to sit back and have a look at. So as readers... As we hear of the birth of Samuel and this start of the story that the kids talk, I guess, showed so well this morning, we're expecting lots through this man in a time when there is no leader in Israel. But as chapter 3 begins, and we're kind of waiting to see what will happen of this boy Samuel, we only get this line, it's on the screen. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence in those days. The word of the Lord was rare. Eli was a priest, uh, probably a high priest. Uh, Priests were appointed by God and they had really three main roles. One was to receive the revelation of God, to hear from God and to tell people what God said. Two, the second role was to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. To come before God on behalf of the people of Israel and say, we're rebellious, we need your forgiveness. We want to offer to you a sacrifice to say we are sorry and we thank you for, for offering to forgive us. To receive God's revelation was their first role. Secondly, to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Thirdly, to represent the people before God. The priest was the representative Um, Who would come before God on behalf of Israel. But the question here is, as we hear the start of, of this chapter, where is God? In those days, the word of the law was rare. He seems almost incredibly absent here. It's like you can hear the echo of nothing coming back. And maybe as you come along today and as you think through your life, that's your experience of God too. Absent. You just don't know him. He doesn't really step onto the stage of your life. He hasn't had that much effect on you or anything, really. And I want to put it to you that maybe that's because you've tamed your view of God. You've domesticated him, treated him as someone far, far less than he actually is. Because that's certainly what's happened here in the situation in 1 Samuel. Let's flick back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and hear a bit of what's gone on in between. Uh, 1 Samuel 2 verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord or for the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would would come with a three-pronged meat fork. While the meat was boiling and plunged it into the container or the kettle or the cauldron or the cooking pot, the priest would claim for himself whatever the, the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Now, that doesn't seem offensive to you. And I've got to admit, it doesn't really seem that offensive to me. This guy's just getting some kind of meat out of the barrel, right? What's so wrong about that? Maybe it's because we've tamed our view of God. Here were the sons and the servants of the high priest, the representative of Israel, the one who stood between the creator of the universe and God's people. This is Israel's highest leadership office. And what are they doing? They're stuffing their faces with the sacrifices that were dedicated to God, that are offered to him, that were to be a a, a relational offering, a thank you, a, a, a show of how much God's people loved him, and they're just taking it for themselves. I was trying to think of, what would be a similar illustration that would offend us? Imagine for a moment you're at the Olympic Games. You're at the medal ceremony of one of the most prestigious events, the 100-meter sprint. And standing on the number one platform is a New Zealander. That's a pretty proud moment, right? To win the 100 meters, the fastest person on the face of the planet, over 100 meters. Standing number one on that podium is a Kiwi. The anthem's played, and you're so proud. There is your representative there that you're like, this is brilliant. And then the medal bearer. Who are there holding the medals, about to come and give them out, while the anthem's being played? Just standing there on their phones, just flicking through their phones, reading it, going whatever. And then it's like time to present the medals, and so the medal bearer grabs the medal and goes, "You know what? Stuff you, I'm putting it on me. I'm just going to wear the medal. Look at me, how great am I?" Now we go. That would never happen. Like that is so, it's is wrong, right? How could you allow that to happen? You, you're a medal-bearer one, not, you don't deserve that. How, how could that go on? You know, surely someone would just step in. Someone like the, the kind of chief of, of, of the Olympic Commission would kind of step in. But here's the thing. In this example with Israel here, the head of the Olympic Committee is Eli. And his sons are the medal-bearers. And he's doing nothing about it. God is on the podium and he doesn't care and neither do his sons. They just take it for themselves. They get in the way and think, we don't really care about who God is or what he's done. (laughs) When you look at it that way, you see it in all sorts of places in our culture, in our society and in our lives, don't you? That we don't treat God as he deserves, that we tame him. We domesticate him and just eat off the things he gives us and move on with life. But that's not all for these guys. Now, these sons of the high priest, Eli, they wanted more than meat. Have a look at verse 22 of chapter 2. They were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the place where you went to meet with God. It was the place that signified where God was and you were coming before him. And these guys who are meant to be serving God's people are sleeping with anyone they can find. It's 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 awful that they've turned the temple of God or the tent at that point into a house of prostitution. And the woman and the women who've, who've, who've served there, they've turned into lumps of meat. It's a pretty bad situation. It's hard to think of it getting any worse. Here was the place of worship that was set up to capture the holiness of God. Set apart from every other God, pure, holy, righteous. To show him off to the world and Eli's sons turned it into a place of contempt. Instead of leading God's people into holiness and righteousness, they led them into sin, into rebellion against God. Do you see the extent of Israel's leadership fail now? Do you see a little more up close the problem with the crisis that's at hand? Do you see what happens When you domesticate God When you reduce him to a mere Provider of pleasure A good luck charm Or something to get you through the hard times Here's the reason God was absent In the first verse Of 1 Samuel 3 Here's the reason God's word was rare God was giving Israel What they asked for You don't want to treat me as God You don't want to know me as I am That's exactly what you get you won't know me. See, the way that you know someone is through their word. They actually have to communicate to you. That's how we know God, through His word. Like, if I stood here for 40 minutes this morning, just silent, you wouldn't know anything of me. You might be able to say some things about me. You know, he's got curly hair. He looks like he's 16. Is he really a pastor? There's kind of questions that come up. (laughs) You're like, but you don't know me. You don't know what i'm like you don't you don't know my past or what i think or what i what, what i feel or, or, unless i speak and that's exactly what god does to samuel in this time when the word of the lord was rare when god speaks have a look at 1 samuel 3 verse 7 now samuel had not yet experienced the lord because the word of the lord had not yet been revealed to him but then God speaks. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. Now, it's not really the kind of most hopeful line you could hope for at that point, is it? Brilliant. Oh, <laughs> have a look at verse 12 and 13. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I'm going to judge his family forever. Because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary and he has not stopped them. First thing to note here is that when God speaks, it's not some mystical experience you know, about how God made us feel like I was brought up into this amazing aura and I felt warm and like water was flowing all over my body. It's not. There's nothing like that here. You don't get this picture here. It's about what he says the content of what he says he's communicating himself to us god would judge the house of israel this is serious the judgment of god against our rebellion against him is always terrible it's always awful it's always something we don't want to contemplate because we get so caught up in our view of the world that we compare everything from from our perspective don't we We see things and we're like, that doesn't look too bad. They were just taking some meat. They were just thinking this way. They were just living that way. It's fine. It's not that bad. Don't get your niggers in a knot, you know? But we forget that we're caught up in that same rebellion everyone else is. We're people who've turned our backs on God. We're people who've had our our sight of Him marred and and changed and lowered. (laughs) It's hard to see anything. With the clarity that god does unless he speaks it to us and how great it is that this god speaks it's why it's so important to shut up and let god speak well as we view eli at this point at least to our eyes he doesn't seem excessively wicked does he you know he's the dad he's not the one doing this thing with the meat I get how wrong Hophni and Phinehas were, but why is God so harsh to Eli to wipe out his whole family line? Well, have a look at verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23. We get a kind of picture here of the way that Eli went to his sons, the way he actually tried to reprimand them. And you kind of get a mixed picture of him, Right. Eli said to them, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all the people. No, my sons, the report I hear from the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against another man, God can intercede for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? What are you doing, my sons? He says, what what have you done? Stop it. Stop doing that. So Eli actually does step in here. But I think what we see is the problem of modern parenting. Let me show you. Eli is all talk, no action. All talk, no action. He fails to restrain his kids. He's the one who's the high priest. He's the one who's in control. He says, stop it, stop it, why don't you? But they don't. And he doesn't. It tells us here something about what God is like. And something of us. Words without consequences are empty. They're useless. Stop it. Whatever. And because that's what we've, I guess, become to expect from modern parenting, that's occasionally what we expect from God. That he's all talk, no action. That he says, follow me, but you know, it's okay in the end. If you stuff up, it's fine. And we kind of tame him. Domesticate him. Proverbs says that the child left to themselves disgraces their mother. Children left to themselves have parents who won't discipline them. When kids are cruel to other kids, they do nothing. When they're disrespectful, they say nothing. Seems to be a trend that that I've seen. Um, Talking to people in schools, my father-in-law is a school principal. 30 years ago, parents and schools were on the same page. If the parents said, look, your kid needs to pull their head in... Uh, so if the school said your kid needs to pull your head in the parents would, would go home and say you have got to pull your head in you're got to stop acting this way at school but now it feels like we've kind of sided with the kids how dare the school say that who do they think they are speaking to my child that way now i, I imagine there are times when schools do things that are unfair i'm not trying to make a generalized kind of like a, 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 a norm for everything but it seems to me that we tend to idolize our children to say they can do nothing wrong, to automatically side with the kids against the school. One of my friends uh, has a mate who's in the police, uh, and his mate says this, and it's just such a good line. He says, the first time some kids hear the word no is when a cop pushes their face into the dirt. The first time some kids hear the word no is when the cop pushes their face into the dirt. Consequences shape behavior. Not anger, not words, but consequences. Eli issued no consequences. He needed to step in and step his sons down. Get out, you can't do this anymore. But he went soft. Why? Why did Eli go soft? Chapter 2, verse 29. You have honored your sons more than me. To think that the creator of the universe says that to Eli. Does it make you shiver just a little? You have honoured your sons more than me. Eli's failure as a parent is often our failure as parents. Wanting the approval of our kids, the success of our kids, the honour of our kids, More than the honor of the creator of the universe. Now, don't get me wrong for for one second. We should be loving our children. God loves his people. But we must get our ordering right. God is number one. He made you, He sustains you, He sustains everything. Eli had tamed his view of God and loved his kids. And honoured them, and wanted their good above God's glory. You see it in families. I, I once uh, knew a family—not uh, you. <laughs> uh, their, their child was brilliant at sport, and I mean brilliant. Um, he, he was young, um, but he was selected in the kind of up-and-coming stars of sport by the Australian Institute of Sports. Um, this guy—he he, could—he could play tennis very, very well. <laughs> Um, his parents solid christians served jesus they're like yeah we trust jesus is ultimate we want to serve him and they really did try and work the balance out and, and they struggled doing it but whenever he had a game on a sunday he just they were never at church the priority ended up being his sport over god's people now i'm not saying that to miss church for a week means oh it's the worst thing ever but do you see what they're modeling? They're modeling that my child's success is more important than meeting together with God's people and having other people encouraged and built up. There's a problem when we put anything above God. I think it's time for us parents to repent. We need to repent of wanting our kids to be our best friends. We want to repent of rescuing our kids from the consequences of their behaviour. They've got to feel the pain. They've got to see the, the consequences of what they do. We've got to stop always blindly siding with them and say, what has on here? You see the same kind of pattern happen with kids church leaders or youth leaders in, in churches. You see people come along really excited to see kids come to know Jesus and grow in him out of great motives, which we all have, Right? And you see them want want to grow these kids and so they become or they try to become the kid's best friend. It just doesn't work. You start wanting friendship, you'll end up with no respect. But you start requiring respect and they'll love you as a leader. They'll respect you. They'll follow you. This leader of Israel couldn't even lead his own children, let alone the people of God why because he domesticated his view of god he reduced god to something less than what he was what we need to let god's word do to us today is to recalibrate our view of god to see god as he is listen to the consequences of eli's actions Chapter three, verse fourteen, and I think these are some of the scariest words that one person could ever hear. The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by the sacrifice or offering. Do you get the horror of those words? To stand before God with no way of dealing with your rebellion against Him. The way that you've treated Him. And knowing that no sacrifice or offering would would fix that relationship. Do you get the horror of these words? And God had provided a way for Israel to have their sins forgiven. To have them cancelled and wiped out. To avoid the right judgment that they deserve for rebelling against God. But, and listen very carefully... If that provision is abused, if it's despised, if it's scorned, if it's disdained, then there's nothing left but the fearful prospect of judgment. It makes sense of the words in 225 about the sons. They would not listen to their father since the Lord had intended to kill them. The sons of Eli had tamed God past the point Of no return. Does your view of God allow you to see that there is a point that we can go too far? Or do you tend to domesticate him and say, Oh, it'll all be fine. I can presume upon his forgiveness and just move on? These sons had rebelled against God with such knowledge and clarity and blatant disrespect for God that God said, That's enough. No more. You ever seen the look in someone's face when they get to that point of no return? You ever done something so bad, so repulsive, so wrong that the relationship just seems irreparable? I've seen that look in the eyes of a friend. I don't know what happened, but his marriage was over at that point. It was too late. It was past the point of no return. The New Testament recognizes the same reality. If, if you reject God the Son, if, if you trample him under your feet and say, I don't need Jesus, Jesus, whatever, who cares? If you treat his death on your behalf with contempt or indifference what hope do you think there is for us? Listen to the writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 26. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of the judgment and fury of a fire about to consume. Does your picture of God allow Him to be so pure? so holy, so different? That he will say, if you reject what I have given you, that, that mechanism for you to be able to be right with me, then there's nothing else. Does your view of God require that to be the case? That he is holy and just? It is possible to treat God in such a way that there is no hope of return. That's the God we meet in the Bible. Now, you can imagine Samuel, young boy, under the tutelage of Eli, the great high priest, hearing God speak for the first time. And it took him a few times to work out what was going on, right? He hears God speak. He hears the voice of God. He's not really happy and joyful. (laughs) Listen to chapter 3, verse 15. Samuel lay down until the morning. I wonder if he got much sleep. He then opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But he doesn't skimp. This young boy takes God at his word. He doesn't cover up. He doesn't do what Hophni and Phinehas and Eli in the past had done and just brush it aside. He hears God and speaks. How hard it is sometimes to say the truth of God's word to a world that doesn't want to hear it do you experience that when you want to hold out the the hope of who jesus is and at the same time the precarious position we are in i am in the world is in without him how hard it is to speak that truth in a way that well doesn't result in us somehow looking wrong stupid crazy Like a doctor delivering a diagnosis to a cancer patient, so must we speak the truth of God's Word to the world that is around us. We must, for it is true. We should never speak arrogantly as if, you know, we've got it all right and you've got it all wrong. (laughs) Not at all. For we are in the same position as the whole world, having turned our backs on God. We are ones who share that same diagnosis Sinner, in need of forgiveness. But how often are you tempted to water down God's Word, to hold back? Friends, speaking the truth of what God says will often hurt people's view of who Jesus is. It will offend the world around us if we are always trying to speak in such a way to the world that we see that makes Jesus just look awesome from their viewpoint, we won't be speaking of the God who we meet in the Bible. We'll be speaking of a tamed down God. I don't presume that as we speak the news of who Jesus is and what he's done, that will ever be popular. That the world will run and say, yes, this is so good, this is so brilliant. The gospel isn't popular it's news that we desperately need help and we can't provide it ourselves it's the greatest offense to any culture isn't it we need to expect to meet resistance not take delight in the resistance not act as as martyrs to say oh how good am i i'm getting you know i'm getting martyred but we need to expect that this word will cause offense But at the same time, we can expect God to bless, to bring people to know him. For this God is revealing himself to the world as we speak what he said. People hear him. And he, through that word, raises up insignificant little people like Samuel. To know him and to serve him and to love him. He rescues them from death to life. He reveals himself to the world and that will fuel our witness. So don't hold back, will you? Don't hold back from the truth of what God says. Sure, speak carefully, speak lovingly with tenderness. Not not trying to win arguments, not going in with a kind of fist flying and going, I'm trying to show you, but to show people the amazingness of who God is, to speak clearly of what He has said and to hold out the Jesus of history who is God, the Jesus who died for us all. Samuel, at this point, was scared out of his brain. He's about to walk into his mentor and say, you're out of here. Yet he spoke. And what we see happened is what God promises will happen. We don't know uh, the eternal fate of Eli, but here's the thing. Eli listened. In verse 18, he said, he is the Lord. Literally, there is none like him. He will do what he sees as good. Eli finally recognizes who God is, that he can't be tamed and domesticated, that he is God and there is no other. It might have been Eli's finest moment, but the judgment had already come down. It was too late. But the spotlight at this point in the story isn't on the Eli. It's not on on, um, his sons either. It's not even on Samuel. The spotlight is on what God is doing in Samuel. As Israel are looking for a leader, as they're looking for the one to lead them in this time, as they're looking for uh, someone who will stand and speak God's word, we get 3 verse 19. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. Literally, God let none of his words fall to the ground. And it makes you ask a question at that point Whose words? Samuel's words or God's words? Actually, it's both. Because what we're about to hear is that Samuel would become and is a prophet, a mouthpiece of God. He would speak God's words. Samuel's words were God's words, and none of them would fail none of them god's words always do their work whether that's to bring judgment or to bring life i need to remember that god is speaking god has spoken and his word does its work is samuel the the answer to the leadership crisis well i think we start to see that god is no longer silent verse 21, the Lord continued to, um, of chapter 3, the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. God speaks again. God comes back when we view him as he is, when we take him as he is, when we hear his word, he is present. The God who cared about childless Hannah cares about Israel's leadership crisis. But the story isn't quite over yet. In chapter 4, the Philistines start to attack. And you see that 4,000 men are killed. 4,000 foot soldiers of Israel are wiped out at that point. And rather than heed God's warning, Israel, still not letting God be God, not letting God's word sit amongst them, treat him with contempt. They think, you know what? We're God's people. No one can do that to us. And rather than heeding God's warning, you get this picture of Hophni and Phinehas, these sons of the high priest. They're still around. their end has not yet come, although it will. They start to treat God like a lucky charm. Not only did they reject him in the temple, but now they say, what we'll do is, we've got these this Philistines coming in. Right, how can we win? We'll get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're a Raiders of the Lost Ark fan... You know, the Ark of the Covenant uh, is based, in that movie, is based on the Ark of the Covenant throughout biblical history. The Ark was really a wooden box. Um, That's what Ark means, box. (laughs) Um, And in the box were two stone tablets. um, Tablets, kind of big ones with writing on them, written from God. The Ten Commandments were in this box, as were a number of other things. But what this box symbolized was the presence of God. The first line on those stone tablets said this, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. God had been clear. This box represented God's presence, that he was God. It saw him in all his hairy, powerful truthfulness. <laughs> it was the place of his presence, the place of God's word. So Hophni and Phineas they think, you know what, we'll take this lucky door prize, this lucky charm, this rabbit's foot, we'll take that into battle. So they pick up the kind of ark of, of, of God. They're like, we've got God's presence with us, watch this. And sort of arrogantly march into the Philistines to say, look, we will, we will conquer you, we, we, are, we are God's people. They think that if they take God with them, they can't be beaten. But God will not be tamed. He will not be treated like a fool. Listen to 1 Samuel 4.10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God will not be treated like a fool. You can't domesticate him and bring him around with you to win your battles, give you a bit of meat to make life go better, and then dump him at the door. That is not the God of reality. The ark's captured by the enemy. God has left the building. He's left the tent, the tabernacle. He, he's vacated the promised land. He's gone. God is not there among them anymore. There is a point where you can push God past the point of no return he will not be treated like a fool he doesn't need israel to fight his own battles god will go off to fight his battles on his own we'll see this next week he doesn't need israel this is no tame god no domestic puppy and the sooner you and i get that the sooner we will listen to his word and go yes lord In the midst of this leadership crisis, God hasn't sent a brave and courageous leader. One that we'd kind of recognize with typical leadership skills. He he hasn't set up some new organizational structure. He sent his word to a boy. Samuel had no recognized office. He didn't come from a line of nobles. Yet God made him a prophet, a mouthpiece, whose role was to speak God's word. It reminds me of the words the writer of the Hebrews wrote. Hebrews 1, one Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. As then, so now, God leads His people by His Word. God's Word to us is the Word that you hear when you hear the truth of Jesus. It's when the truth of Jesus is spoken, we are hearing God speak as we open the Bible and see who He is and what He has done and what He offers us. There, God speaks to us. He's not silent today. But He's also not tame. He is a holy God It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of this God if we have rebelled against him. 30,000 bodies testify to that fact. Eli's family tree will testify to that fact. God removed himself physically from Israel's presence. He showed them that you cannot tame him. You cannot treat him with contempt. There is no way I want to stand before God with just me and him. Just me and my sin before God, the holy and pure God. Not when I see him as he is. Meeting God unforgiven. It's a nightmare that doesn't end. He's uncompromising in his holiness. He cannot do anything but punish wrong. For it is wrong and he is right, he is good. But judgment would not be God's last word. God's grace, though rejected by Israel and us, cannot be frustrated. God's purposes for his humanity will not and cannot be frustrated by our human wickedness. We, we can't beat God. We're not more powerful than him. If he chooses, and he has, listen to what he says, 1 Samuel 2.35. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. God intends to provide for himself a faithful servant, secure leadership, a faithful priest. He says in the next verse in 36 that he would be my anointed, literally my Messiah, my King. The writer of the Hebrews sums this up so well. Hebrews seven twenty-six. For this is the kind of high priest we need holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Friends, Jesus is the leader we need. He is the word that we need to hear. He has the picture of God that we need to see. Not a domesticated picture, but the God who is. The God who takes our rebellion against him seriously and the God who loves us so deeply. And in this leader, Jesus, we see God offering the solution to our problem. That he would die in our place, that he would be the sacrifice for us. Friends, Jesus is the leader we need. He's the one who's dealt with our sin and he's the one through whom God has spoken. The question is, will you listen? Will you listen to this God? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today very aware of I guess our standing before you, that as you view us, we come up wanting, for we've turned our backs against you, we haven't treated you as the God that you are. We admit, Lord, that we so often domesticate you, bring you down to a level that we think we can handle, that's really just a little more than where we're at rather than letting us see your holiness, your purity, your goodness, your justice as it really is. Lord, we are sorry. Please forgive us. Please correct our view of you that we might see you as you are today. That we might live our lives with the reality of a loving God and a holy God that we might see what happened when Israel rejected your word, when the leadership of Israel rejected your word. Father, we ask that you would speak clearly to us so that we do not reject your word. That as we open the Bible, as by your spirit, you make that word come alive, that we would be shaped and molded by the God who is. Father, we are sorry. And we are so thankful for your son. We are thankful that he has died in our place and offered us life and given us such an amazing gift. So we ask we might fix our eyes on him, that we might live trusting in Jesus, not our own strength, but in that sacrifice that was offered for us, that amazing grace. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.